Welcome to Macintosh and Mon. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched The Neverending Story. A troubled boy dives into a wondrous fantasy world through the pages of a mysterious book. What is this movie? I don't know. What a weird movie. It is very strange. Okay, what, we have one big, huge monster problem right off the bat with this movie, uh-huh. and that is that this is not based off of an American or English story. Correct. It is based off of a German children's story. Sure, which if you've read any German stories or like fairy tales, they're a little bit odd and weird and also frightening. But even more so is that, you know, we can go back to the Grimm's, right? But those mm-hmm. have a legendary status and made their way over. Nobody in 1984 knew what the fuck this was. I, so, okay. Unless you were in Germany. Fair. So here's one of the things is that like we were, t- when we were talking about picking movies, like, oh yeah, the never ending story. And we're watching this and I was like, I totally remember this. I remember Bastion. I remember this. And I was like, wait a minute, there's a part two. And part two has Jonathan Brandis, who I was obsessed with. And I was like, that's the one I watched so many times i've seen this one many times but it was the second part that i believe has like more of the magic well more of the touchstones for you i guess probably but i think that's also where we get like aside from the song we just and there's there's just a lot more like falcor and stuff it's cooler i think it's better well let me let me throw this out there Mm -hmm. visually stunning shit it is so cool. Like, we're watching this, and of course, it's been mm, 30 years since I've seen this film. Uh, when we do, when they do the rock guy, like, I'm watching this, and I was like, this reminds me so much of the Gnome King in Return to Oz, and that whole sequence, and, like, these special effects are very rudimentary, but they're so well done that even today, in 2023, I'm like, this is kick-ass. Oh, no, it's like Henson-level Muppet creature shit. Yeah, it is so cool. I love it. Without Henson's hand on it. Sure, but it's definitely modeled after that. But, like, that, the way that they did the scenes and the models and the set paintings and everything flows really well together. Mm -hmm. And weirdly, at the end, they fucking got me. Yep. They get you. Yep. But it's a real rough ride to get there. Yeah, like, I think the problem is the framework story is so little of the movie. Well, there, you, for me, honestly, it comes down to there's so much lore that we have to somehow dive through to get uh-huh. to the point when I don't think you need that much for this character. No, I don't think you do. But I do think the framework story like should play a bigger role. And part of the problem is that this is definitely a part one, because in part two, Bastion goes into the story. Oh, we'll get there. Yeah. So, like, that's why, like, this is such, It's all, it almost feels like a prequel, because, like, it takes, like, it's just, it's all backstory. So it feels like a prequel as opposed to, like, an act, the actual, like, meat of the story. Well, and I will say, because of how little is actually going on. I know. It's so weird. In this movie. I don't think you needed to push it to two films. Agre- no, agreed. I think you could have a slightly longer one film and accomplished all the things you needed to, like hit all the high notes of this story. And 
I fear that it is our director who prioritized style over substance. Mm-hmm. And that's what gets in the way here. Because, I, I, I mean, there is, there is that whole thing of, it's a really cool idea. Yeah. You have this storybook. It, this kid is dealing with all these struggles mm-hmm. of this, grief this- and loss. And I mean, they hammer that shit. It's wild. Yeah, the bullying. And this is his escape. I love that. Escaping into a book. Hello, that was my childhood. I mean, like, I was the kid who, like, when, like, the bullying got bad at school, it was just take a book. So I had something to do at lunch. So I wouldn't just sit there and cry. Same thing at recess. So I would, like, books were, like, my saving, like, saving grace the whole time. It just, so I get all of that. But then it's like dropped off, and then it's just this kid hanging out in this really creepy attic of a school. The attic of a school. I was like, school buildings are flat. <laughs> they don't have attics. Uh, it depends on the school. And some like where, have, where some have storage closets and stuff like that. But like the other thing for me is like watching it now. I'm like, okay, so like where in my school would I have gone to have this type of experience? And, like, I remember at one school we had, like, this weird lecture hall that was, like, dug into the floor. Like, it, it, it's almost like it went into a basement area and we didn't have a basement because um, it became, like, stadium seating. I was like, that'd be a cool room to have, like, this type of experience. And then, you know, in my high school, we had a ginormous theater with attics and wings and basements and these weird stairwells that were only used for storage. And I was like, oh, yeah, any one of those places would have been cool. Yes. Um. So, like. Again, I can relate to all that. That's neat, but it's just like comes out of nowhere. And it that definitely doesn't match like the building. <laughs> an an attic that looks like it's in a creepy old house in what appears to be a very normal school building. <laughs> and that's the other thing. As a kid, I never connected the fact that he was in an attic at school. I always <laughs> just thought he was hiding in his house. No. <laughs> or in or in the attic of the bookstore. That was always where it was in my brain. The whole thing is so they drop so many things that mm-hmm. make you go, what? Before you even get to the fucking story. Mm-hmm. And then the story, like I said, they just, there's so much extra lore and character stuff that they just assume you know. Mm-hmm. That you're like, what? And granted, I don't know that this was necessarily ever intended for an American audience. It just wound up that as they made it, they were like, you know... Might be able to make a few extra bucks if we push this overseas. America might like this. Yeah, no, I completely agree. But I, I don't know, man. There's a there's a whole lot of weird going on with this one. Mm-hmm. I I will say this: it is not a terrible movie. I wouldn't even necessarily call it outright bad. Mm-hmm. It's just so weird. Fair. And not in a good way. Okay. All right. Well, our budget was twenty seven million dollars. That. Sounds right with all of the special effects. Yeah, that one that rounds to around seventy-eight million dollars in today's money, but also it was about fifty million Deutschmarks, making it the most expensive German film ever produced to this point. Mm-hmm. At that time in 1984, it was the single most expensive film made outside of Hollywood or the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. It grossed twenty million dollars. Okay, so yeah, making about fifty-eight million. Now, granted, it paid off really well in Germany. Nearly 5 million Germans saw the film during its er original release. Well, that's cool. Which was a huge, like, win. Like, Mm -hmm. unheard of in that country. But 
because they decided to up the budget and make it a huge production, mm-hmm. Warner Brothers had passed on Supergirl to be like, we're going to do this instead. And so they rushed it to make it their summer tentpole. And then both movies flopped. Oh, God. But the other part of this is that, again, it may not have been a runaway hit, but the kids who saw it fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely had different reasons for loving the second one a little bit more, but also like the, I rented this at least six or seven times. Yeah, I mean, like I said, at the end, when they turn the story around and you're like, God damn it, they pulled me back in. And that that might have a little bit of who who may have had a slight hand involved here. Mm-hmm. But regardless, it has its it has its punches. It just uh, OK, let's talk about let's talk about some writing stuff. Mm-hmm. We first mentioned the writer of the novel, Michael Onda. He is a German novelist born to a surrealist painter who was banned by the Nazis after their takeover of Poland. Mm hmm. Onda wrote a number of fantasy stories and stayed completely out of the limelight until he was approached to adapt this film. Hmm. Then we have Hermann Weigel. He only ever worked in German film, but he did write a pretty uh, well-known movie called Christian F., which was uh, the story of a teenager in Berlin who dealt with addiction at a young age and became a fixture in the, the Berlin art and music community. Uh, she wrote her memoirs, and then that movie featured David Bowie prominently doing his German version of Heroes. Oh, okay. And then we have Wolfgang Peterson. Now, he is returning from our Oscars 82 series because this is his follow-up to Das Boot. Wait, what? <laughs> uh-huh. He I made mean... Das Boot, and then he made this. You know, I totally get that swing. Like, I was just trapped. In a boat for a very long time. I want to go to fantasy land, but also it's German, so trauma. Yes, but also it's like Das Boot was a an international hit, but he was still in German film. Mm-hmm. He saw this, I think, as an opportunity to say, I can go make movies in America, by the way. <laughs> I mean, that's what he's doing here. Yeah. And so he's writing the screenplay for this. Now, I will say... He only ever wrote one other screenplay for a film he directed, mm-hmm. which is probably not the worst idea in the world. Sure. Finally, with an additional dialogue credit, Robert Easton, he is basically a random character actor mm-hmm. who uh, somehow came to work on this script. I, I don't, I didn't see his credit here, but it's entirely possible like he was in one of the roles and helped rewrite things. Mm-hmm. So, eh. Okay. What do we think of the writing of this movie? I mean, I've already complained about the 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 framework story. Um, I I think they do a really good job of quickly telling us like Bastion's life sucks right now. That part's great. Like they they do a really good job. Like he his his mom has passed. His dad is definitely a stern dude. Also, major dad. <laughs> like that's this that's this guy's only like job ever is to play stern dad. Yeah, sort of. I I will say this. He's a lot softer than that. He's sure. also just like so busy with his own shit sure and then you know like the the like really bad bullying of the kids at school so it's like life is not great for this kid and so i that piece of the framework love really like it was quick because we didn't spend like 30 minutes in that we like it was literally 10 minutes of the movie and then (laughs) and then and then we have everything that's happening and i don't even remember where 
what the land is called but in our fantasy world we have some very like big cool like i mean that the nothing is coming and it's killing everything and we're all on the lookout for this okay cool like there are real stakes happening in this other world but the marriage between those two is basically non-existent it base like bastion acts as like a commercial to the sh- this other thing that's happening <laughs> like oh sorry this is when you go to the bathroom it's there's there's no link here and that is a big problem to me it just keeps going on and on yeah the, the pacing is off and that's where they could have used bastion to help like oh now let's get back to the story like this is what's been going like we like it doesn't have to like be a perfect connection but like they could have used that you know what movie came out the next year? What? Princess Bride. Fuck yeah. That was the perfect thing that they did. Whoa, then they whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> is this a kissing book? That movie is the shit. And here's the other thing. If you don't know this, uh, people who love Princess Bride, it's based on a book also written by William Goldman. And the book is written that way. Yes. <laughs> it is integral to the book. And the book reads as perfectly as we feel the movie the book is almost better it's per it's it's go read that book people all the people need to read that book anyways this one let's be honest with ourselves mm-hmm. there's a level of attention span that sure we just don't have anymore now okay here's the thing we have long movie fatigue the the last bit of our last series and this past year's Oscars were fucking, everyone needed to do a two and a half hour plus movie. So everything was long. So even though this film isn't actually that long, it feels that way because the pacing is done. An hour and a half movie should not drag this much. And and that's where we're at. We're like, come on. You want to walk? Let's walk through a swamp with a horse that's going to die in the first, I don't know, 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah, I don't remember that happening so quickly in the film. Like, I knew it was coming and you're like, fuck, this is traumatic. But also, yeah. Well, it has to match Bastion's trauma of losing someone close to him. Uh, to watching their horse die. Look, the story kernel makes a lot of sense. The problem is, is the film only covers half of the original book. Mm-hmm. So in the book, we cut off Bastion Ghost into Fantasia using Auron, which is on the book. And we mm-hmm. see that there, sort yeah. of. But then in that story, he's crowned king. Yeah. And then there's a war to try to topple him from being king. Mm-hmm. And then as the book goes on, he starts to lose his memories of the world. Mm-hmm. Until he is put back into the real world. Yeah, which is And awesome. that's the end of the story, which is fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. And sad, bittersweet, but awesome. Yeah. So so now that like I've remembered that there's a second movie and like hearing that, I was like, please, please someone remake this as like a miniseries. As like a four-part miniseries would be so amazing. Well, <gasps> at one point. Kathleen Kennedy and Leonardo DiCaprio started negotiations for the film rights. They wanted to get deeper and deeper into the layers of the novel. Uh-huh. However, mm-hmm. it's probably never going to happen. Uh-huh. And that is because Michael Onda was thoroughly unhappy with this movie. Fair. He strongly disagreed with the deviations from the story. Fair. Now, there's a reason for it. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with budget. That makes sense to me. And special effects. The limitations they had made them 
assess it and go, we cannot go the whole way with this. Mm -hmm. Including things like in the novel, the Southern Oracle is a living voice carried by air and requires rhyming language. Mm -hmm. How do you depict that? Yeah. In the book, the nothing is completely invisible. They use the cloud to show the nothing, but in reality, the nothing is literally nothing. Yeah, I I remember someone talking about that, and that makes sense. But like, how do you do that on film, especially at that time? And I I I honestly I like the use of the clouds because then you you can see it because things being invisible on screen kind of defeats some of the purpose. I don't, I don't know. I think that I think that is a fine compromise. Well, like it it's not an excuse to not round out the whole story in a better way. Sure, but. There was a level of, we cannot go all this way. And then I think also they felt like, well, we can't end it on that note, can we? Which you completely misunderestimate your audience of older Mm -hmm. kids who would absolutely love that. But it's 80s Hollywood. They're dumb. They instead are like, well, we have to figure out an ending. So they bring in Falcor to chase the bullies. Ha ha, he gets to win. It's like, well, yeah, but that's not the point. Sure. It's a fun note, but mm. that's not the point of this story. The point of this story is not just for him to regain his confidence. It's for him to face down his grief. Mm-hmm. That's the only way he can save this fantasy world. Mm. And just like, this thing is so much deeper than any of you guys realized when you took it on. You were just like, oh, cool kids fantasy movie. No. <laughs> yeah. This is a much deeper, deeper movie. So, um, Onda requested a change of the film's title Mm -hmm. to say, this is not my story. And when that didn't happen, he tried to have production completely halted. He said, you can't do my film. Mm. When those were denied, he sued and he lost. Yeah. And I don't think he really had a claim. They're like, you signed the rights, man. Like, yeah, (laughs) we get to make the movie we're going to make. But it's very, very likely that he shut down any conversation of a future adaptation because he was so upset with how this came out. Makes sense. So, you know, maybe some things are just better left as books. And don't get me wrong, there are lots of times I read a book and be like, oh, what a cool movie. And then I, I have to stop myself a lot and be like, hey, why don't you just enjoy this book for being the book it is? Yeah, I think, especially now, I mean, as, you know, um, fun fact, we, uh, our family has hit the bookstore hard this year. <laughs> like for, for whatever reason, we just thought, let's read books. And I've always been a reader, but you know, it just always goes through phases. And it just seems like every book I'm picking up is already been optioned for a movie. It's already being turned into a TV series. And that's all fine and good. It's kind of like can't uh, can't things just linger for a little bit as the one thing they were made as and then we get it later. Be- it's yeah. I mean, no shade to no shade to Reese Witherspoon, and it's not the worst idea in the world. But been highly intimated through like circumstantial evidence that Reese's book club is basically her means of procuring scripts for production. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it, no, she, that's that's always been the case. Here's here's the thing about that. Um, she got really good. She is an avid reader. She always has been. Oh yeah. And as she would read books, she's like, we need to turn this into something. This is such a good story. And she became like, she became an amazing producer. No, she's a great producer and incredibly talented. So her book club is a lot of 
a lot of it is these are stories that I want to turn into TV or movies. I want people to read the book. I don't have any problem with that. That makes complete sense. You read a good book and they want to turn it into a movie. Cool. But do we have to do it so fast? (laughs) Can the book be out for like five years first? And also I think, and, and I wouldn't necessarily say this about this story, but I do think there's a real danger in trying to make films out of really deeply literary novels. Actually, I'm going to say you're wrong there. I think it's the mistake and what a lot of people have gotten used to is one book, one movie. That too. And that is the problem. And some adaptations have worked really well and some don't work well at all. And I think you can have something that is very literary produced into a film or series of film or a mini series. I am really glad that mini series have come back in a big way with streaming so that like bigger stories can be told in that way. Yeah. But again, you have to get the right person to adapt this thing to a, the different medium correctly. <sighs> well, it it not everything is going to be a like for like. Books aren't typically written as a blueprint for what the movie should do. Some of them are. There have been books that I've read and I was like, you just wrote a screenplay and said it's a book. Like that's exactly what this is. And to be quite honest, in this case, mm-hmm. I think it's somewhere between both of these sides. That's likely. You can't be completely faithful to this novel for the reasons we pointed out. Sure. How do we make a movie out of that? Yeah, but the story... It could, you could have told this whole story. You could have. You could have told the whole story. All right, well, now let's talk about our director. Oh, that's right. It's Wolfgang Peterson. Mm. So um, this is, again, right after Das Boat. And right before, in the next year, he made his American debut with Enemy Mine. Mm-hmm. What do we think of Wolfgang Peterson's directing in this movie? I think it's pretty good. I mean, I think the special effects are awesome. You know, while what's happening with Bastion is weird, I believe the kid. Um, so that takes either a genius child actor or a very deft director to be able to get that, that lovely a performance out of a child. So I, I like all of the individual sequences are great. The collection of the movie as a whole, not so much. Uh, and also a shout out to same cinematographer as for Das Boat. Oh, cool. Yost is back. Yost Vacano mm-hmm. uh, DP'd this movie, which like we talked about how amazing that cinematography was. Uh-huh. And in this one, it's like, yep, still got that touch. Yeah. That last sequence with the princess is like, whoa. Yeah, it's pretty cool. There's some there's some iconic stuff, and it's no wonder that this was hugely inspirational, most notably to to Stranger Things, mm-hmm. but also to a lot of other stuff. Because visually, it's gorgeous and stunning. Like it's not like he, it's not like he held back trying to make something pretty. It really is just the hand structuring the thing just didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, we also have a secret director. Oh, a secret director, and who might that be? Steven Spielberg. Yeah, I knew about this. <laughs> <laughs> like 80s child trauma, Spielberg's on board. To be very fair, Spielberg wasn't really involved until post-production. Okay. So this was, again, a complete German production. They actually filmed in Germany during the summer of 1983, one of the hottest summers in Germany in 25 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Weird. <laughs> but... When they started to talk about potentially marketing it in America, mm-hmm. he was friends with Stephen, and Stevens went in and helped him with editing and marketing. Okay. Because 
they needed to find a way to make it relate to American audiences. So on the one hand, you know, I think we may have cut out some connective tissue because of that, because Mm -hmm. Steven's edits, from what I can tell, really cut the fat. Okay. Possibly that's where we lost some in translation. But on the other hand, we might have got a movie that dragged even more. Uh, Possibly. If we didn't have Steven being like, hey, you got to cut some of this. Yeah. (laughs) Like... If this movie was two hours, I might have fallen asleep. Yeah, it's, it would have been pushing it. Thank God it was an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And I think we were like 45 minutes in being like, oh my God. Yeah. So I, I don't think Stephen harmed it. I, I think he, he did the best with what they had. I just don't, you know. Nothing, nothing saves a script. We say this all the time. Mm-hmm. You can't save bad writing. Or in this case, not bad, but flawed. You can't, yeah, you, you can't, you know, direct or act your way out of just bad writing. You can make it better, mm-hmm. but you can't save it. And there's just, there's a big, massive problem with this script. Mm-hmm. Now, there are two who could have been betters because Michael Onda really wanted two other directors for this. Okay. One is one of Poland's most famous directors, Andrzej Wojcia, who, um, I don't know a whole lot of his movies, but he's one of the most famous Polish directors of his time. Okay. The other is Akira Kurosawa. What? That's nuts. Look, man, I love anything that man's ever touched. Sure. In his entire cinematic career. Uh If Kurosawa wanted to make the never-ending story, by all fucking means. I'd I'd be interested to see that. Uh, If you've ever seen Ron, which is his adaptation of King Lear, it is stunning, gorgeous color. Mm -hmm. I mean, huge broad swaths of color and fire and you know uh, some blood but you know just all this beautiful artwork and i was like man if you threw that in this movie holy shit mm-hmm. and then you know maybe get some more recognizable acting because <laughs> they spent a lot of budget on special effects but uh we we did not have very many well-known actors in here mm-hmm. let's talk about that cast shall we okie dokie we start with barrett oliver as Bastion. Before this, he was a kid actor in some small roles in TV and movies. After this, he appeared in Tim Burton's original Frankenweenie from 1984. Okay. Daryl, Cocoon, Cocoon the Return, and scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills. He then left Hollywood and pursued photography, and now he actually works in a 19th century technical medium of photography, which is used in various film and media projects. He also has gallery shows for it, but he he works in a specific type of older photography method. Mm -hmm. So that's what he's doing now. That's cool. What do we think of Barrett Oliver in this movie? He is very good. I mean, the script's not doing a lot for him, but he is just, you you just want to give that kid a hug. You really do. Yeah. (laughs) He's got a rough go. Yeah, he does. We've seen worse kid performances. Oh, yeah. Anyway, we move on then to our only other main cast member, Noah Hathaway as Atreyu. Atreyu. Before this, he was in the original movie and television series Battlestar Galactica. Oh, okay. As a little kid mascot. After this, he was in the movie Troll, in which his character name was, and I am not joking, Harry Potter Jr. That's awesome. love it uh he then took an interest in martial arts and worked as a dance instructor until an injury forced him out at 18 
He currently owns a tattoo parlor in L.A. with his wife. That's cool. What do we think of Noah Hathaway in this movie? He's not as good as Oliver. He, he, I feel like the actor needs to be older for this role. I feel like this, it's written as though they're like 10, 11, 12, and it really should be um, a boy who's like, you know, 15, 16. And, and that's, that's, not, that's not his fault at all. It's just, I was like, I, I, I don't think he's very good, but it has nothing to do with him. Well, part of the problem is they're using none of his dialogue. Oh, well, that's never going to help a performance. And let's be clear, dubs can work really well, and not just in a language sense, but like even in some older movies, dubs can have a really profound good effect. Okay, fair. I, I, I can respect a dub, but it's, it's not working here. Once I knew that, and I was like, oh, this is bad. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, ma- it's not mixing at all. Mm-mm. Noah had almost no ability to do an accent, and his actual speaking voice was a lot more higher pitched. Mm. So it really isn't going to work for Pretty Boy. He was there to be a face. So, like, that's that's where I'm like, you hired the wrong actor. Yeah. And, like, it's not to shit on him at all. It's just he was not the right guy for this part. Well, you needed you needed somebody who was, like, close enough to a bankable teen star for this role. Well, it... it they were making it in Germany. They were making it for Germany. Like it, he he didn't have to be a bankable star. I think going an unknown route is actually better. Maybe, but I think you needed to go a little bit older to get to get that vibe. Unless you just have a kid that's that fucking good. Yeah, and if you do, great. But you you clearly don't have what you're wanting here with this guy. Um, and that's that's not his fault. No, oh, it's a shame. Uh, He was originally cast in the role, then he lost it when the original director for the movie was fired. Okay. And then when Wolfgang took it on, he got recast. (laughs) Okay. Um, He was actually due to appear on Broadway in Chaplin alongside Anne-Margaret and Gene Kelly, but instead chose to do this. Mm, Well, I hope he had fun doing it. He was so pale when he got cast, they had to take him to a tanning salon to get his skin to register darker on screen. Okay. Under some of those harsh lighting and like yeah, with the it'll wash out and anybody, stuff, and yeah. and the not so great feeling of we're in a different world type thing, which is like yeah. However, it's a little bit better than the original option because in the book, Atreyu is actually green. Okay, so they attempted to try to match that tone, mm-hmm. and according to Noah, it wasn't believable. I looked like fungi. Oh God, poor guy. That's funny. (laughs) He was injured several times during the making of this movie. Oh, no. Yeah. We get some rough kid treatment. Oh, God. Now, let's be clear. Nobody did this on purpose. But. (laughs) That doesn't make it okay. No. Uh, While learning how to ride a horse, the horse threw him and stepped on him. Oh, During the drowning sequence, his leg got caught on the elevator underneath the water, and he got pulled under. By the time they pulled him out, he was completely unconscious. That's horrible. And during the fight scene with the Gamork, he almost lost an eye. One of the claws on the Gamork poked him in the face, and it was so heavy, it knocked the breath out of him. I really hope they paid for his therapy. They probably did, and also... Because of the extreme danger of that fight sequence, they only got they only did one take. He should have never been in that. It should have been a stunt performer. But let's be very clear. 
It was at least not Twilight Zone the movie. As soon as they were like, oh shit, we can't do this again. That's so awful. Poor kid. Not good. Real bad. Don't like it. The 1980s. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to our puns, because literally everybody else here is a random person of note. Okay. Gerald McCraney is Bastion's father. Yeah. Major dad, but I like to remember him most as Hearst from Deadwood. Yeah. I always forget he's in Deadwood. Great. Also, House of Cards. Yeah, he's in House of Cards. We have Tammy Stronach as the childlike empress. Now, here's the fun part. She stopped acting Mm -hmm. for a long time after this. She actually has only recently kind of recommitted to acting. Mm -hmm. She instead went on to be a dancer. Oh, okay. She never intended to be an actor. After the movie, numerous producers sent her scripts, and she said, um... Most of them are pretty inappropriate for how old I was. Well, that's important to know. <laughs> She's like nine or ten. Yeah. She was attending theater classes in San Francisco, and she landed the audition. Her acting teacher was friends with the talent scout for the movie Anna Gross. Mm-hmm. She thought she was auditioning for a small play. She was not aware it was a major motion picture. That's kind of cool. And she lost both of her front teeth right before filming started and had to wear fake teeth causing her to lisp for a while until she could get used to them. (laughs) We have Deep Roy playing Teeny Weenie. He is Mm. a little person who played the Oompa Loompas in 2005's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, yeah. You've seen this guy in so many things. Yes. Limal, as the first balladeer, he is the lead singer of Kaja Gugu. (laughs) Okay. Who he is singing the never-ending story. Okay. And he had recently been ousted from the band after the guitarist tried to take control. And then the man who drops the milk is Wolfgang Peterson. Okay. And the man next to the man who drops the milk is producer Bernd Eichinger. Okay. I don't know. That was kind of fun. Okay. All right, let's move on to trivia. Trivia. In Greek mythology, Atreus was the father of Agamemnon and Menelaus. Mm Mm-hmm. His name is also the basis for House Atreides in the Dune series. Okay, cool. And the word literally means bold guardian. I like it. It's an ancient name. Falcor was a 43-foot motorized creature with 6,000 plastic scales and pink feathered fur. Mm -hmm. The head was literally three feet tall with an actual tongue in its mouth. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you just, I mean, again, so much was put into the visual. Yeah. That's really cool. Falcor was real. You could like hang out with Falcor on that set. Yeah. But then why? Why was the story so bad? Mm-hmm. <sighs> uh, one fun note too, if you go to Bavaria Film Park in Munich, you can actually ride on Falcor's back. Oh, that's cool. Along with getting into the submarine set from Das Boat. That's cool too. I Okay, so we're going to have to do these things, David. Mm -hmm. Contrary to urban legends around the film, the horse that played Artax did not die during the making of the film. Okay. It's long been a rumor and legend. The horse was perfectly fine. There were two identical horses used for the scene. They were professionally trained for many months for the the sequence. Mm -hmm. They alternated between the two during filming, and they remained unscathed. However... Peterson absolutely understood where that rumor would come from Mm -hmm. because of the shock of that moment, especially for a lot of kids. Sure. But he he stands by it. He's like, that grief and sadness is absolutely crucial to the story. Oh, absolutely. It is. 
And in fact, one of the horses was gifted to Noah Hathaway after filming. Oh, cool. Uh, however, because of all of the costs needed to transport him over to America, yeah. um, that horse remained in Germany. Fair. The gesture was still very nice. Yes. The original Oren medallion hangs in Steven Spielberg's office. Mm. And finally, during the first Ivory Tower sequence, you can see in the background Yoda, Mickey Mouse, Chewbacca, C-3PO, Ewoks, E.T., and Gumby. Okay. I buy this. I know, right? We're in a fantasy world. Our fantasy friends show up. I'm okay I don't hate it. I know. I'm not mad about it. And that leads us to ratings. Ratings. For every film, we have a specific rating system. For this one, Falcors. No, it's Orens. Oh, boo. Orens is better. It's the token. Falcor's cooler. Falcor is cooler. Well, you don't even know. You haven't seen two? Fine, Orens. We're going to have to go watch that. No, please no. I'm going to, because I need to go relive my Jonathan Brandis love. (laughs) Um, All right, so it's technically my movie, because I hadn't seen this before. Yes. I know it's not a good movie, but I'm going to give it a two. I'm going to give it a two. The special effects are the shit. Even by today's standards, they are fucking cool. And I love the idea. I love the concept. The kids acting in it are doing their best. I don't want to shit on them. The writing just seriously fucked this story over. It kind of makes me want to go read the book because I am in a book mood. Yeah, it's two. Two for me. I'm going to agree with you. Okay. I don't even have like the... It It almost made me feel the same way about Risky Business, but with Risky Business, I was still more sucked in. And in this mm. one, it was actively like shoving me away because of all of the the just slog that you have to get through in it. Yeah. Like, just tell that original story. I, you don't have to get into all the details of it, but you've got to tell that second half of that story. Yeah. It's the only way to get the point across. Mm-hmm. Gigantic missed opportunity. Not, not, you know, the worst, but bad choice. Yep. Agreed. Well, now we're going to go from childhood nostalgia and memories to the peak of sarcasm in the Chevy Chase role that he might be most iconic for and I have never seen him in. Okay. We're going to watch Fletch. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've heard a lot about this, but never actually seen it. This is one of those movies my mom has literally looked at me and be like, you've never seen that? How? It's like your movie. Yeah. (laughs) And I haven't. I don't know a lot about it other than the posters where he wears a bunch of disguises. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I don't know much about this. But we're going to find out. All right. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.